For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Wow, this is a big group. <laughs> Good morning. Um, um, it's good. I can avoid making this a completely uh, sprawling, disorganized talk. Uh, <clears throat> Sitting here as we've been practicing zazen, um, thank you very much. Uh, I wanted to talk about how we extend our zen practice, our well, our uh, our zazen into the rest of our life. Does that make any sense? And I think it does, because uh, Dogen, our 13th century founder of the Soto Zen School, makes a point of, uh, given his description of what uh, Zazen is, in our awakening, how could a Buddha be limited to sitting or not sitting? Which is, is not... Uh, you know, it's not how most of us think of Zen. Zazen is the, the sexy part of Zen, the part that Zen is known for. When people come for the first time to a Zen center or a temple, it's always, well, I want to learn to meditate. So that's what that's about. We, we have other aspects of practice, obviously, and we have uh, ceremonies and rituals. And we have different kinds of vows. The, we have the paramitas, we have the precepts, the 16 bodhisattva precepts. Um, but uh, Dogen talks other places, and the Soto school generally is pretty clear that um, that that's not all to Zen practice. It's in practice extends to every moment of our lives, or could ever can, and recommends. Even in the case of the precepts, the Soto Shu emphasizes that the precepts and Zazen are not different. And I think it's worthwhile thinking about what Zazen is in order to understand what that, how, how that could be again. Are there other parts of our life and other things that we do or that are not separate from Zazen? You know, the Zazen, is, as Dogen describes it in the Fukan Zazengi, the universal recommendation for Zazen and other places as well, Zazen has pretty much two aspects. The first is he talks about uh, taking the backward step that shines within to let go of all of our deluded thinking and emotions uh, and, con and conceptualization. So uh, letting go of um, 
good, bad, like, dislike, approve, disapprove, right, wrong, uh, this, that. Um, and when we have done that, there's a turn and uh, our original face appears. Original face, fundamental reality. He calls it several things in that little short essay, Fukanzazengi. He talks about the fundamental, it's the fundamental point. It's the original face. It's just this. But what it involves is waking up to finding ourselves here in this world, a part of this world. Suzuki Roshi, um, used to say that uh, a Zen student is lives so that uh, they are always a part of their surroundings. And, um, and that is a big point. And it's, but it, it, there's more to that. The, the, the degree of felt intimacy of coming, uh, stepping back from all of those uh, thoughts and judgments and desires and emotions and finding yourself here, having let those go, since they are the they are both the cause of, of and the result of our sense of separation from the world, the sense of here I am. I'm, uh, I'm here, the world is out there, even for that matter, I'm here, my thoughts are over there, I'm watching my thoughts, so somehow they're different from the me that's watching all these things. It results, stepping back results in coming back here, but with an intimacy that surprises us. That we realize that the fundamental underlying reality of our life is that we are intimately connected to this world, to um, these surroundings, to the extent that Dogen himself, you know, so that the world uh, is a one piece. It's all of the stuff out there, but it runs right through us. We are a part of this world. So that um, Dogen even says that um, this this world, uh, of which we are part, is is not just a world, but a big self. It is our big self. And so this smaller self that we are, that we formulate with a small mind that's grasping and caught up in our desires and deluded thoughts and emotions and fears, likes and dislikes, is just part of that bigger self that's included in this, that includes this reality, these right here. And so um, that's the basis. For Dogen's question, we wake up, uh, and Dogen calls that uh, the practice realization of perfect enlightenment. The in that because he, he's saying that because we are inherently awake, we are inherently awakened. If we can put all of those thoughts and emotions and delusions to one side can step back from them, then that fundamental awakened nature that we have, our Buddha nature, can function. We have big mind, 
Uh, we're no longer constrained and wrapped up in this mind of uh, focused on ourselves and our, our being caught up in our thoughts and feelings and desires and emotions. We open up to this world and we open up at the same time to the big self. We have the small self and small mind that are just a part of the big mind and the big self. And at the same time, Dogen says that this is this practice, that this stepping back and becoming free, this liberation from these painful emotions and this painful thinking, and this opening up to the world, to this right now, this bigger self that we are part of, is the Dharma gate of joyful ease, which is a phrase for you know, the joyful ease that the Buddha experienced upon becoming awake, that it is the opposite of the suffering of dukkha that we experience through most of our lives. But if you, you have to ask yourself, if, if all that's involved, if what's principally involved in zazen is not taking this uh, fairly uncomfortable cross-legged position and sitting very upright with your eyes straight forward and not moving for 40 minutes at a time, if that's not the main part of zazen, if the main part of zazen is that turn where we step back from all the this um, self-obsessed thinking and feeling in this opening to the world, well, uh, you know, how can zazen be limited just to sitting down? And it's not. And the, the, um, the Soto Shu, uh, in Soto monasteries in Japan, the monk's practice is very much involved in carrying forward that operation of opening up and stepping back from this, this deluded thought and feeling opening up to the world moment by moment. There's a phrase that's used called Memitsu no kafu. So men is, um, is, is a word that has various meanings. It can mean intimate, it can mean close, it can mean tightly woven. So men, Mitsu means cotton cloth, Memitsu tightly woven cotton cloth, and kafu Kafu is the um, family wind, family attitude. So this, this, uh, you know, I like this image of the uh, of the cotton cloth, the tightly woven cotton cloth that we have to live and and perceive ourselves as part of this tightly woven piece of cloth. Completely interconnected with that. So our family style, our family wind, is living at living out that that orientation that we are a part of this intimately connected to this tightly interwoven and intimately connected world. So the mito nekafu is frequently spoken about at least in English, and, and I think it's probably the case in Japan as well, is that it's talked about as um, being very moment by moment in all of your activities, being very careful and precise and thorough and uh, with a, a special kind of in, uh, intention that way. 
it's the it's the kind of practice that 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 we do when we perform uh, or yoki and we're holding the bowls with two hands. When we drink tea, we're holding uh, the teacup with two hands. We carry our rakasu, you know, that we carry the yoki bowls like that. All of that step by step in in Japan. A monk's life, um, at least in a Soto monastery, is just about every moment is governed by that sort of convention, that sort of ritual, a ritualized life. There's a way to place your shoes. There's a way to open the door. There's a way to close the door. Um, there's a way to step through the door. There's a way when you're in the bathroom. There's a way to hang your robes and uh, snap your fingers before you sit on the toilet to let the hungry ghosts know that they need to dodge whatever's coming on top of their heads. All of that, moment by moment. And, you know, with that kind of description and, and um, misses out on something very important and, and without understanding the additional element, um, Trying to follow that practice moment by moment, attention to detail, very precision, uh, precise, very thorough, and so on, can just be one more achievement that we try to to uh, get, and just another expression of our grasping, deluded mind. And the important part is that the recognition of this intimacy, the recognition that everything is ourself, gives rise to the to the fact that moment by moment. We need to act in each situation um, in a way that is caring and is taking care of uh, the situation, the, the things that we encounter, the people we encounter in order to benefit them. Moment by moment, that's what we're doing. And so that kind of understanding of how, uh, how we can live moment by moment all day long Zen is, is something that we can carry forward into our own lay practice. We're not going to, uh, <laughs> we're just not going to do that in, in the restroom. We're not going to sit at a restaurant and handle everything with the hands and so on. Um, the thrust of this, um, the no kafu is really captured in an essay that, that uh, Dogen, a 13th century founder of the Sota school, wrote uh, called the Tenzo Kyukan, the uh, instructions to the Tenzo, the head of the kitchen. Uh, and that's been translated by our teacher, again, Jan Leighton, along with uh, Okamura Roshi. And um, I recommend it highly. I'm, I'm a fairly obsessive reader and speaker about Fukan Zazagi, but I'm likely to become an obsessive reader and speaker about Tenzin Um But all everything involved in in the Mitsu no Kafu and the way re that Dogen recommends that we live our life is set out there in the instructions to the cook. What you how the cook is going to perform the role in such a way that it's not just a job. It's not just something that gets done. It's transforming that activity, transforming his life into Dharma, into the practice 
of awakening. And he does that. It's interesting because um, it's not just a job. It is it is spiritual practice. He makes a point <laughs> of um, really criticizing a monk in in at the Tenzo in a monastery he had been in, um, where the the Tenzo had just sort of delegated all responsibilities, never appeared in in the kitchen at all, which was a complete distortion of what he thought the role was. He, his view was that, as he says, the Tenzo is supposed to roll up the sleeves and get involved in performing the actual work. And he has two stories in, in Tenzo Kyokan that are, that are really pretty good about monks he met, Tenzos he met in, Japan, in China when he was studying there, who were elderly and um, making a point after having walked, I don't know, 15 miles in one case to come by Japanese mushrooms from the ship where, where Dogen had just arrived from Japan, and then he was going to, after that, walk right back and would not stay the night with Dogen, would not eat with Dogen because he had to get back and do his work with his Tenzo. And another Tenzo who was an elderly monk who was frying out in the hot sun, drying mushrooms and turning the stick. And when, in each case, when Dogen said, well, why are you doing this? You're an older, respected senior monk. You should be studying the sutras. You should be doing lots of zazen. Well, why didn't you do that? And they, in both cases, they just said, you really don't know much about Dharma practice. <laughs> <laughs> so um, he had further conversations and, met, and had conversations with other uh, Tenzos in the monasteries he visited, which opened his eyes to the possibilities of moment-to-moment practice off of the cushion. It's interesting because he uses language that's very uh, similar to language he talks about with respect to Zazen. Or he, there are several times when he talks about how you know, you, you just can't get up, get involved in your own likes and dislikes about uh, how how much food you've been given from the storeroom that you're going to have to use to make supper supper that night or that afternoon, and you can't uh, get upset about the lousy ingredients they've given you that you've just got cabbage and similar greens to make soup rather than fancy soups with mushrooms and lots of vegetables and things like that. You can't, you can't do the job based on, you think some people in the monastery are good monks, some of them are not particularly accomplished monks, some are senior monks, um, some are junior monks, and you know, they're making all sorts of distinctions between them. So he says, no, you have to take the backward step that shines the light within. You need to step back from your likes and dislikes, your approval and disapproval, and do the best you can, paying close, intimate attention that everything, that you will do everything, treating all of the monks as members of the community. And in doing that, in doing that spiritual work, feeding the monks, you can maintain the harmony of the Sangha and you can convert the monastery into a room of the Tathagatas, into, into Buddha, the Buddha womb, where, a place where Buddhas will be nurtured and born. And so when we you take that backward step, 
and you let go of your preferences about how you're going to do this job. Pay attention to doing the work to the best of your ability. You arouse three different minds. There's the joyful mind, the joy, uh, mind of joy and ease that you experience in doing zazen, the, 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 the joy and ease of, of enlightenment and awakening. This gratitude for having this opportunity to, to, to be here, to be born here and to have this work. There's a parental mind or nurturing, the mind that in all of its activities is, well, let me step back from that and say big mind, so that mind that isn't wrapped up doesn't wrap you up in your likes and dislikes and your preferences as you do the work. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give the best food to these monks and these others can eat this. Um, I'm very upset that I'm having, this is all the food that I've got. And then there's, uh, the open mind that, you know, the big mind, the open mind that finds itself working as part of one life. And from that, again, there's, uh, there's, um, nurturing mind or parental mind, the mind that's going to take care of the people that you're working for. It's going to take care of the ingredients which you should treat as um, precious as your own eyes, that the water from rinsing rice should be treated like your own blood. The pots that you work with should be treated as if they were your own head. And you work with that kind of care, with close, intimate attention. Um, when you get distracted, simply come back. Like, pay close attention, but remember to pay attention to the work and to your surroundings. Don't pay such close attention that you cut yourself off from everything else that is going on around you and that needs to be done. Um, when you're done cooking, wash the pots, get them pure and put them in the right place. If they belong on the upper shelf, put them on the upper shelf. If they belong on the lower shelf, put them on the lower shelf. When you're putting away the ladles and spoons, don't just throw them into a drawer or onto a shelf. Place them carefully without clatter. Take care of them and treat them with attention and respect. So that is the mind of practice that we can undertake in our own lives. You know, um, Zengyu, Paul Kopp, who is the visiting teacher here, has spoken before about how in our own lives we can create reminders of that will help us to pay attention, to take care of things. For example, not just kicking off your shoes and turning them around, but take them off carefully and place them in the right place, that sort of thing. That is the sort of um, life that we can live, and it carries forward not just in the work. I mean, obviously, this is not just limited to work in the kitchen, but everything we do throughout the day. And it carries forward to our, the way we deal with other people. So, um, for example, I said that the Soto Shu has said that, um, that the precepts of Zazen are not different because 
they are uh, they are um, expressions of our the presets are expressions of our awakened mind. They are expressions of our sense of intimacy, closeness, and one shared life that we have with the people that we encounter. They're not rules that we follow. The presets are descriptions of how uh, when we wake up, we will interact with other people so that they act as not rules, but as touchstones, sort of flags where you, whoops, wait a minute, you were a little sharp in that conversation. It, it will bring you back to this moment, to the awareness of this year of life. And similarly, even the practice of the, of, um, the Parvitas is the expression of self and others is one life. Um, Dogen talks, a, you know, has his, his famous essay, Bodhisattva uh, Shishobo, where he distills the paramitas and the bodhisattva life into four activities. Giving and generosity is one, and then kind speech and beneficial action, and then identity action or cooperation action, where he says when we realize we, that we change our orientation so that everything we do is identity action and cooperation with all things, then we share um, one life, uh, self and others are one suchness. So I think that's something we can aspire to. The constant awakening to this life. We can follow um, we can follow Suzuki Oroshi's advice that we should be always be part of of our surroundings. And that we must what does it say? We might Suzuki Roshi wrote in his um in his lectures on Sandokai, the harmony of difference and sameness, that we must treat things as part of ourselves within our practice and, and within big mind. Small mind is the mind that's under the limitation of ideas and some particular emotional commitment or the discrimination of good and bad. So if you've read in my beginner's mind, you know that over and over again, Suzuki Roshi is, discusses sitting, opening to big mind and living out big mind as part of your surroundings. Living out big mind as shared life with all beings. So I'm going to, what time is it? Okay, good. I'll leave it there. That's enough talk. <laughs> Please, um, dragons and elephants, bring your thoughts and questions. I'd like to hear what you have to say. So Wade will be keeping a watch on the screen for raised hands, either physical hands or the, the uh, reaction hand. And I think I will see any raised hands here in the Zendo. Yes? Hi. Thank you so much for the talk today. I'm Michael. Um, I wanted to ask about, I think you were talking about joyful ease. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess I was just hopeful for you to maybe remind me where that one, just like in a total 
dharmic sense that teaching is a joyful ease that you were referencing. And I don't know, just expand a little bit more on joyful ease. Yeah, well, joyful ease is a translation of, of what in Sanskrit is, is sukha, which is the opposite of dukkha, suffering. It's the joy and ease that is experienced by the awakened person, by a Buddha. Uh, in, in light. And Dogen, um, you know, in, in Fukan Zazenki refers to this practice, this twofold practice of stepping back and opening up as the practice realization of perfect enlightenment. That enlightenment isn't some event that happens, it is an inherent part of the very act of stepping back and opening up to the big mind, this enlightened mind that is inherent in us. And so that's why he would say that in the practice of zazen, in the practice of, of being a good tenzo, you would, ex you would experience joy and ease. When he talks about, you know, when you take the backward step and perform the, the uh, work of a tenzo, letting go of your own preferences in order to uh, perform the work carefully, attentively, with a warm mind and the, design and the intent of benefiting others, uh, you awaken the joyful mind. Sure, thank you. Mike. Um, <laughs> that's our Tenzo, so <laughs> so we can uh, we can just stand in the kitchen and watch him glow. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was gonna say, like, I I have a difficulty letting go of my own preference in my role, which is a beautiful thing to experience. Um, yeah, and choosing what food to make and how I make it and how I interact with people. Uh, Chris, who's, you know, uh, doing a wonderful job with my sister today. Um, uh, and, and interacting and, and, um, I find that the more that I do it, <laughs> um, the more that I find myself seeing this thing that I guess is joyful means of, um, <laughs> Experiencing what's coming to me and, and meeting challenges and um, letting go of the way that I want things to do or things that I, I want uh, things to be. Um, and as you really eloquently kind of described how that's kind of a smaller version of, of what practice is in Zazen, um, it's really wonderful to see that and experience it. Yeah. I think one of the great things about the role of Tenzo being able to experience that is even Zen, which tries to be very concrete, can have terms like practice realization of perfect enlightenment, which seems so abstract in a way. I mean, it is very concrete that we wake up to this moment right here, to our life right here. And maybe Dogen, um, sort of is aware of that, because at the end of Fukan Zazenki, he says, he says um, practice realization is not defiled, it's not special, 
it's a matter of everyday life. And, and that's, I, I find that very reassuring. This is not some special state or experience that's out there that we're pursuing, that it is in, inherent in. It is not separate from. It is just doing this attentively with a caring mind, a warm heart with the intention of benefiting each situation, each object each person that we encounter, for that matter, each thought that comes up. We have to be gentle with it. Be warm-hearted. Jen. Um, this teaching is, is quite troublesome to me for, the, for this reason. Um, I was taught to do things a certain way and to, you know, put things back where they belong and um, get things organized and all that. Um, and I have to tell you, I don't do that. And um, and I, although it's become a little easier since I've been attempting to do, uh, to practice Buddhism. But I think what you're describing is, I don't want to say the opposite, or it's an alternative to um, guilt. You know, why didn't you put your shoes where you're going to be able to find them? Uh, why, uh, you know, who created this mess? Um, what what is that? because I feel that the way we raise our children and the way I was raised is um, do this or you're guilty and I find it's difficult for me to I'm sorry for being so personal it's difficult for me to make the transition to doing this joyfully instead of doing it because you've got to, because if you don't do it, there's something wrong with you. Uh, that's uh, so I, I wonder if you might mind making a comment on that. Yeah, I, I, that's great. Um, I appreciate your being personal about it. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't, I, I'm not sure that being so personal is a good idea. I think, I think <laughs> what we would say is, um, Taking care of things in this way is not something you are supposed to do. You ought to do. And if you if you did just kick your shoes off, you're done something wrong. You're bad. Yet this is an opportunity to uncover the Buddha nature that is in your kitchen tools, your ladles and silverware and knives and spoons and all the rest of it, and your own, that you find yourself, that in acting in this way, you are um, not only awakening to the reality of, of whatever you're working with and being careful, but yourself as well, that you're finding you exist in relation, entirely in relation to other things. 
So living out that relationship in a caring way, as if you really were a part of the same self, is an opportunity. It's not, it's not you really screwed up that time you didn't do it. Um, and, you know, taking that backward step uh, is not something that we can even do intentionally. We, we can say, I'm going to give my, allow myself to do that. And sometimes we wake up and say, boy, you've really been pretty hard on yourself. Or, um, I'm very frustrated. You've just taken that backward step when you recognize what's going on. And then the, the, what we have to do is, is say, oh man, you've been really sloppy and punish <laughs> ourselves about it. Yeah. That, that's not going to be helpful. Because I have to tell you, today and many days, I walk in here and sit down and face the wrong way. <laughs> and <laughs> I did it today. And I'm, Facing the wrong way and looking around and watching everybody facing the wall and thinking, you screwed up again. <laughs> it's really, it's funny. Well, you know what I find, one of the things I find encouraging about this practice is that, that so much of it has been available to us all along and we've encountered it before. You know, the, the waking up, that backward step. Uh, and finding yourself in this, in these surroundings and in this moment is something that's happened to us all the time before we ever learned to do Zazen. You know, walking down the street and all of a sudden, oh, okay, here I am. I really don't have much of a memory of, of what happened on my way here, but here I am. That's an experience that we have all had, I think. And what we do is, um, in Zazen is, is recognize that that's happened and be willing to stay with it. And in the same way, you know, the, the attitude behind Mimitsu, I think, is one that, that many people have had, whether they didn't think of it as, yeah, the, the, the careful action, the warm-hearted, caring action, the warm-hearted attention that you pay to performing each task, taking care of each thing that you encounter. So if you're working in the kitchen, you take care of the bowls and the knives and the spoons and the food that you're preparing and make sure they're treated with respect. And that's an attitude that I remember my seeing in my grandfather when I was growing up. Um, he took incredible care of his tools, for example, um, always keeping them ordered, always keeping them in good repair, you know, keeping them oiled, uh, putting them in the right place, uh, dealing with them very carefully. He would never throw, a, you know, I mean, a cast steel wrench. He was not going to throw down onto a shelf or onto the floor. He was going to place it in the right place. And I think that that, he had a respect for the tools that I think is something very much of what, uh, Mimitsu is talking about. Recognizing just being careful and warm-hearted and caring for uh, the objects that we encounter in our life. Yeah, Libby. Um, yeah, part of what's coming up for me in this and just now and what's 
been coming up for me listening to you and, and something also when we focus on it's really this warm-hearted piece that is so lovely it's such a lovely uh counterbalance to that worry about getting it right um and i was this just now was making me feel something about the difference between when i'm doing things so often to please some implicit judge who's going to say I did it right or did it wrong um, versus I feel like the spirit of what you're talking about of like it's not about the, imagining that there's some judge watching you all the time and always being displeased <laughs> or pleased <laughs> but often displeased um, but but it's more like the sense that maybe that I wonder that there's a discovery like, oh, these practices can be a way of uncovering that inherent sense of warm-heartedness and, and interconnectedness and, and love in a way for all that is, you know, or in that inseparability with all that is. It's like, it's like, oh, we've discovered that taking this care helps uncover the care that's already there. Um, and so then if it's not doing that, if, if instead the taking the care is making me more anxious and self-judging, like that's something to notice about what's getting stirred up for me rather than something inherent about the practice. It's like, oh, this is helping me notice something that's getting in the way really of feeling that reality of love and connection. Yeah. Um, something else I think that... Um I think it's interesting to, to note about Mimitsu action is that it's different from, it incorporates, it, maybe it includes, but it's a little bit beyond mindfulness, let's say, which we, um, many of us have done, had mindful, uh, done mindfulness practice where you tend to focus on state of mind or bodily sensations or even movement, but it's very focused on body-mind. And Mimitsu, in order to do that careful action, you have to be there, you have to be awake and paying attention and undistracted. But the focus is very much on your interaction with something. Performing a task, being aware of the task, being, taking, being aware of the things, that you're working with, treating them with respect, treating them gently, warmly, and the same with the people you're dealing with. It's really, how am I going to, it's a change in orientation toward the world and the things in it as well as to yourself. You're constantly discovering yourself in relation to the world in this moment right here. Yeah. Uh, Hogatsu has a comment. Oh, sorry. Hello there. Um, I'm hovering above you upstairs, recovering from COVID. Um, and I'm sorry that there's not more heat down there. But I was thinking about as you were speaking, everyone, <clears throat> Douglas and everyone, about 
This Mimitsu is part of like embracing and sustaining all life, but also being embraced by and sustained by all life. And that there's a kind of knowing of that, you know, we could call it prajna, but it's, it's really this, this sense of love that I think Libby is speaking about too. That's, that's not just like focused attention, but it's it's this warm spirit of being embraced by and embracing the situation. So maybe that could be mm, tossing my shoes off carelessly, <laughs> seemingly carelessly, seemingly carelessly, because I feel like Jan, when, when Jan, I, I watch you sit in the Zendo on occasion, because <clears throat> you sit across from me and I'm facing out and I know, I feel like like you are even no matter which direction or how you're sitting that you're bringing that to your cushion this embrace by and embracing so I think it's an interesting thing because we, in our minds we want to get everything right you know when when we can't ever really miss but there's that sense, I think it's so mm, in Soto Zen because of the form and because of our own American perfectionism, it's so easy to want to get it all right instead of uh, just surrendering to the rightness of each moment. So that's just a, a it's been a great talk and very embracing and sustaining for me. So thank you, everyone. Thank you. And I, I really like that observation that. No, I think it would be fair to say that that joyful mind is at least in part that recognition of or sense. I mean, this is all intuitive, but this sort of gut level sense that we are embraced and sustained by the world. Thank you very much. What is our time? Do we have time? Yeah. Do you have another um, comment, Jen? I don't want to talk to you. Nope. Uh, but embraced and sustained by the world. Um, and this is a main, this is a very strange idea because. Um, to be personal again, um, you know, I, uh, I'm an anti-nuclear activist. Okay, I'm an activist. And I see the world rejecting people and, you know, uh, building a wall at the border so that more people will die having to cross the Sonoran Desert. Um, etc. To feel that that we are embraced and sustained by the world is really um, radical. I mean, it's not. It's a radical idea, and it's also, if you'll pardon me for saying so, completely wrong for a lot of people. I don't think that being embraced and sustained by the world avoids the existence of suffering. 
word injustice. But it's a recognition that we are dependent upon the world for our, our present existence and our ongoing existence, and recognizing that at the same time as we recognize suffering and injustice. It's not a way of saying, oh, well, everything's great. Um, yeah. It's a perfect world. Couldn't possibly be any better. <laughs> you know, oh, I just, you know, my hand is rotting off with the with tetanus infection. Well, so it goes. I don't think that that's why. And I think it's also, um, again, it's easy to get into this plot kind of framework where these, if you think that in doing this practice, in, in acting in this way, changing an orientation in this way, uh, what if I don't feel that way? Am I a bad Zen student? Um, have I done something wrong? Is there something I need to be embarrassed about or ashamed of? And the answer is no. This isn't about it. Why? It's the recognition maybe of something. There could be other things that are attracting your attention a lot more, like the suffering that people have. I mean, you could certainly say, yeah, but. Mm -hmm. Or, yeah, but, and also. And we have to do something about it. It's the challenge, the challenge of that suffering calls to us. And we are called to embrace and sustain other beings and work for their benefit and well-being as well as Buddhist sufferings. 